Hello, this is Jessica Burbank on The Conversation with the Young Turks. Today, I'm joined here with Chanda Macias, who is the first black woman to obtain her medical cannabis degree. She wears many hats. She's also known as the CEO of Women Crow. Thank you so much for coming on, Chanda. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited. Um, we got our pardon. Amazing, amazing. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. What's interesting is that I really think it's long overdue, but no patient in the United States deserves to go to prison for having medical cannabis, which I think all cannabis is medical and it's medicine. And for the president to now get us pardons on the federal level definitely brings awareness to our cause and our movement and to be able to take the medical cannabis industry to a whole nother level. And a lot of your work has been focused on women specifically and minority communities that were disproportionately impacted by this, by the criminalization of marijuana. Can you say a little bit more about you know, being a woman in the industry, is there anything more we have to do maybe to correct the difference? There's disproportionately white folks who own marijuana dispensaries and are involved in the sale of cannabis now that it's legal in many places. Can you say some more about what your work looks like in that respect and what maybe you think should be done? Definitely. So right now we have almost over 38 states that have been legalized cannabis to some degree, yet ownership for minorities is less than 4% of the whole entire industry. And then when you put like being a woman on top of that, I'm like non-existent. I'm the only one and it's time to change that narrative. Um, it's about empowering women that are more capable of being able to nurture or provide health healthcare needs to patients and to people. And so when I look at the industry, not only has it had a lot of injustice for patients, but it also has for ownership. And so that's why we have initiatives that really focus on social equity. So we even have access to be a part of this industry. I think it's really interesting your approach here, right? Seeing cannabis as medicine and a lot of your work uh, focuses on growth in the market by finding the appropriate strains for certain ailments. I remember when I was growing up, it was kind of like you get what you get and you don't get upset. Now I live in California, there's access to more strains and it's amazing the technology there. Can you say more about finding the right strain for ailments? Yes, it's strain element alignment. That's a um, key phrase I coined really early in my career. When I saw that certain strains really perform their best with certain conditions. So I wouldn't change, you know, if I had to work with patients and help them select their medication, all cancers are not the same. There's brain cancer, there's breast cancer, there's prostate cancer. And for me, being a biomedical researcher, I really start to look at the different components of the different strains and align them with the condition that can help the patient have that improved quality of health over time. And so cannabis is very much so a medicine, it's an alternate form of medicine, but it is unbelievable that in 2022 with over 38 states legalized that people are still being imprisoned for using medication. 
Yeah, that framing is so important because when I think about crimes, and when most people I think think about crimes, they think about a social contract being broken, someone harming someone else. I don't consider people who want to smoke a little bit of weed dangerous. And in fact, as you point out, you're a woman of science, you're a biomedical researcher. You're looking at this as this is medicine, this helps people. And you're one of only two businesses in Louisiana that has a medical license. Can you say what it's like providing this service to people and how people are receptive to this or not in Louisiana? Well, I'm in the Bible Belt and we're the first to legalize the program in the South. And it has its challenges. But what I could say without a question is that it's universal in our voice that patients need healthcare that works for them, individualized healthcare. And so when you see a state like Mississippi to pass medical marijuana at 74% approval rate, you understand that patients need healthcare that works for them. And just demand alone is so important and it's reflective of what the community wants. And it shouldn't be used to target certain communities, which it has been in the past disproportionately locking up, imprisoning minorities because the form of systemic racism. And it really hurts everyone else that needs a form of medication that can really help them. So it's time to really focus on changing that narrative and thinking about it that don't harm one population because you're really harming all of us by saying that we're gonna incarcerate patients because now the rest of us will be deprived of a healthcare benefit that we need. And that is medical cannabis. Right, I think a lot about people who maybe a cop says they smell weed. It's become a tool used to over police communities of color, especially black communities, as a reason to intervene in a situation. And then if, if they find marijuana on someone, they can get a simple possession charge against them. But oftentimes it's like, hey, what are you doing? I smell weed, and that's a reason for them to intervene. And then sometimes they can get a charge on, well, you weren't cooperating. And so it's turned into a tool used to over-police black communities and then disproportionately put people in jail and prison. And at the heart of this is it's just someone using weed, which, as you've pointed out, is a medicine. Can you say more about uh, what the next steps are, you think, and how we can reach people who, for whatever reason, are still on board with marijuana being criminalized? Well, the first thing is to realize is that how does uh, a possession charge impact a patient? You can't get gainful employment. You can't get Pell Grants, federal um, assistance for even, even education. You're denied licenses to be part of the cannabis industry, but you're also just can't get housing at the federal level subsidized in any way. So really it leaves this population of people that really need this healthcare attention at a place of desperation. And so now that we have the federal pardons and that example set by our president, it's now time to take that on the state Love. And what President Biden reflected in his comments is bringing awareness that the governors, not in all states, have the power to pardon. But in the states that do have that ability, they should really strongly consider that so that now it can start to reverse those impacts that had on populations that were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. 
Right, yeah, it's unfortunate that, you know, the federal move impacts about 6,000 people is the figure I keep hearing. There are an additional 2,000 people that don't exactly qualify that have simple possession charges at the federal level, but far more people at the state level. And uh, this, this step is a good one. But you also advocate for things like uh, tax reform and financial services reform. Can you say more about how that's at play here? Definitely. So what's so interesting right now is I'm so proud of our Congressman Troy Carter. He has been a champion in both the um, launching the Medical Marijuana Misdemeanor Expungement Act, where now that you've been pardoned, that on the federal level, you need your record cleaned up. And cleaning up your record takes a process. And he has laid out a plan and be adapted on the federal level so that now it's removed from your record these um, convictions and that you can have a clear path to your future. Now, also, he's carrying the bill called the CLIMB Act. The CLIMB Act allows people like myself that are minority women, veterans, protected classes to have access to loans and funding sources to be a part of the cannabis industry. And so it's really important that we're reflective in this industry, especially since we were disproportionate impacted by the war on drugs. So you've been in this industry for quite some time. You have a strong sense of how the war on drugs has led to our current predicament of so many people being in jail and prison on simple marijuana charges and charges related to those. Now, were people expecting Biden to pardon folks? Were people asking for it in the industry? Is this something that you feel kind of lone wolfing that you're advocating for it? You know, what's very interesting is that during the campaign, um, he did address the use of medical cannabis and supported that effort. And we've been waiting as a community to see what that looks like in terms of his support. Was it be some form of legalization? Was it going to be a criminal justice reform or a banking reform? And it was really nice to see that he led that path with really a civil rights or equality uh, movement and bringing, bringing awareness to the fact that people have been in prison and that he would start by instituting um, those pardons for those um, that were impacted. What's interesting about this, though, is that until it's really um, legislation and it's created, it's a, still a temporary path. And so for me and others in the industry, we're looking for a permanent solution. We need a solution that will be systemic for our future generations. So black sons like the one I have, the two I have actually, will have their freedom in the future. And it can't be reversed like things that we saw with Roe versus Wade. It's time for us to make some concrete stances and push this type of narrative ahead so that future generations aren't impacted. You know, and as you say, it's medicine, it's common sense. There are specific strains that address specific ailments. This is not people who are dangerous. Uh, all of the, the crazy, you know, cannabis stuff that you hear on Fox News drives me nuts. Uh, and so it's really important, the work that you're doing. And is there anywhere people can go to read more about your work and what you're up to? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have a website, Dr. Shonda, D-O-C-T-O-R. I'm Shonda. 
Shonda.com. You can follow me on social media and on womengrow.com. We have a big Instagram following and we're here to empower people that want to be empowered. Yeah, the word I was searching for there, talking about Fox, was the reefer madness. And this really is the response to the reefer madness, is let's get real about what's going on with cannabis and how it can be used. And what can we do common sense-wise? It really is common sense to pass legislation so that this really doesn't impact more people's lives and reverse the impacts of the war on drugs as much as possible and have common sense reform going forward. Is there any last thoughts you have on the topic that you want to share that we didn't get to? Because I want to make sure you have a chance to share this because you are the person to talk to about this in this moment. Well, I think a lot of times patients are really scared about using cannabis and they use it as a last resort. What I want to tell patients out here is that strongly considering it as a primary source. I believe that the endocannabinoid system, the system that works within us, actually functions and regulates other systems in our body. And so once we have that system at a homostate, I'm gonna say a balanced um, you know, view, then the body can function the way it was meant to be. So really consider that and you know, stay strong in the movement. Please support um, marijuana legislation and our rights to actually have healthcare. Yeah, marijuana is medicine and maybe can help you reach homeostasis. I, I like it. Thank you, Dr. Chanda Macias for coming on and talking with us tonight. Really appreciate your perspective on this. Thank you. All right, I'm so excited to be joined by Derek Marshall, who is one of my people, right? A working class kid who now spends their days fighting for better days, running for public office uh, in California, in District 23. Derek, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so let's get into it. you grew up, you know, pretty working class, and you came to the point of being an organizer, which is always a good story. So why don't you lay that out for us? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So uh, you know, I, I had spent uh, a couple of years, uh, you know, uh, after after college, and and I lived uh, in Europe for a bit uh, before coming back. And uh, and when I came back, I I threw myself into political organizing. Uh, I have done a lot of different uh, types of things. I was uh, uh, I was the an organizing director, and I'm sure you'll you'll probably get this, uh, or a lot of progressives will get this. But I was an organizing director uh, without pay uh, for a city council race. Uh, Jessica Salins, who was running against Mitch O'Farrell in CD13, and that organization of of folks that we had organized together is now uh, known as Ground Game LA in Los Angeles. Uh, and so during that period, uh, and and during kind of my my early organizing days, uh, you know, I drove Uber in order to uh, be able to afford uh, my rent. Uh, you know, I, I like to tell my 19 cent banana story, uh, which is uh, the the only thing I was able to afford to eat uh, some mornings was my 19 cent banana and a free uh, cup of Trader Joe's coffee in order to be able to. Uh, pay the bills and uh, continue to be an organizer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just love the stories of people who don't get upset when they see people not fighting for them. They see the amount of money in politics. It's easy to say, "I'm going to give up," but we believe that you know, organized people beats organized money. 
And you're running a campaign right now that is heavy in the organizing. You're using your organizing background, making over 100,000 calls in September alone and recruiting hundreds of volunteers. Can you say more about your approach to recruiting people and how you're running things in the field? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm I'm an unapologetic progressive, and uh, and and since the beginning of this campaign, when when we sort of set out and decided that we were going to do this thing, uh, I said we are going to run uh, as uh, close to a perfect progressive campaign as possible, uh, and I knew that that was going to um, require a lot of work uh, on our end to be able to uh, fundraise in order to to you know hire staffers. And, uh, and the types of people that we have brought onto the, the campaign uh, all come from the progressive movement. It's, it's something that I'm really proud of with my campaign, uh, from my campaign manager to our digital team. Uh, everyone has you know, either worked on, on the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, worked on Nina Turner's campaign. Uh, we've had folks that worked on Cori Bush's campaign. So all of us uh, come from the organizing space and you know, I like to say that we've had a, a renaissance of uh, the American left over the last, uh, you know, ten or so years since Occupy Wall Street. Uh, we continue to get stronger with every single uh, election cycle, and I think that the thing that makes our campaign uh, so special is this uh, this real diligence around working class organizing, uh, union organizing, uh, going out and activating people. Uh, you know, through the dialer and getting folks uh, signed up to volunteer, and then once they are in and uh, working on the campaign, getting them trained up in uh, in all different types of organizing best practices, which which ultimately uh, strengthens the overall uh, organizational ecosystem. Uh, we've had folks that have. Uh, you know, came in and, and volunteered on the campaign that have you know started LGBT centers. We've had folks that have come in uh, onto the campaign that are starting uh, women's rights uh, marches, and so uh, we really view our campaign as a, a you know almost as a as a school, uh, an organizing school for uh, for for activating people and, and bringing them into the movement. And I think that that's exactly what organizing working people, organizing marginalized people, is is all about. I always say that uh, no one is a natural organizer. There's no one that is born on this earth that is like, I have everything I need to do this and this is what I'm meant to do. It's hard work. Uh, it's uncomfortable to go to people's homes and talk to them and meet people outside of their workplaces and talk to them about politics and about the experiences that we have in our everyday lives. We're told about this American dream. If you work hard, you're, you'll do well. And the evidence in most people's lives suggests that they work pretty hard and are still not doing well. And most politicians are bought and sold. And that's why people see folks get into office and not do much. But when you're in the community and you're organizing alongside people and teaching them how to stand up to power to make things better, that's a completely different campaign. And it shows that you really care. So can you talk about some of the core values in your campaign and what motivated you to run and what you all are fighting for? Yeah, so so I think you know what what motivated me to run was just the experience of being able to uh, to build uh, to build power, uh, you know, at the the grassroots level, uh, you know, starting on uh, different campaigns uh, and seeing that oh, this is how we're able to actually activate uh, working people and how we're able to to take. Uh, you know, to take fights for Medicare for all, uh, and really see it through cycle after cycle to to get to a spot where suddenly 
uh, Medicare for all is now hugely popular. And there's a world that I think we can all see where we're gonna be able to pass some type of Medicare for all legislation you know, in the next cycle or two. And so for me, uh, empowering people, uh, helping folks to be able to realize their power uh, for me is just a, is, is a core belief. And I think for me, the moment that I decided to, uh, to get involved you know, and decided to run for office was when I saw, uh, basically it was Super Tuesday uh, on the Bernie campaign. And I saw that uh, this, uh, you know, that, that this, uh, this effort that we were um, that we were pushing and it looked like uh, it looked like we were uh, we were going to be struggling again and so I decided to uh, to throw my hat in the race or at least begin begin to think about it uh, because what I thought was was well you know we all need to get activated we all need to jump in and if we do that and we sort of do the 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 organizing that we all have been trained up to. Uh, that we'd be able to actually see meaningful change. For me, it's it's about uh, building uh, it's about building the power base so that we can achieve very very tangible uh, working class relief. Uh, the ultra wealthy in this country have way too much of the pie. I think we all know that, and it seems that a good chunk of uh, of uh, you know one one well both political parties don't really seem to uh, to center uh, working class people or marginalized people and for me that's uh, that's not what a worker a working uh, class party that's not what a labor party is supposed to be about and uh, and so that's why I'm running is because I think that uh, I would like to see a, a thriving labor party in this country that is fighting for uh, for a livable wage, that's fighting to cancel student loan debt, that is fighting for a woman's right to choose, uh, that's fighting for social issues, uh, that's fighting for economic issues, that helps to establish better equity and equality within within the society. We always hear this narrative, right? That uh, if Democrats want to win in the current landscape, you've got to go more to the center. You've got to take the establishment Democrat Party messaging. And the thing is, most people in America are everyday working class people who would benefit from all of the policies you just talked about. And you're finding on the ground that your message is resonating with people who typically vote with Democrats or NPP voters. Can you say more about how maybe you're finding that it's not true that we have to go to the center or stick with the typical mainline Democratic Party messaging? Yeah, Jessica, I mean, that narrative is, is categorically false. Mm-hmm. And I think that we as progressives have seen that for uh, many cycles now. And I'm seeing it on our own race. Uh, you know, over the, the, you know, this in the general election, we've now made over 200,000 uh, phone calls. We've knocked on thousands of doors. And, uh, and so we actually have the data. We're seeing in real time how popular uh, messaging around Medicare for all uh, actually is. And I'm here to bring the good news that we don't need to play it to the center. That is uh, no longer uh, a reality. And, and in fact, uh, if the Democratic Party wants to win in rural and exurban areas, uh, then they really need to adopt uh, campaign strategies like we have, where we are unapologetically talking about uh, Medicare for all, working class policies. Uh, and I think that um, the, the the biggest thing with our campaign right now is that the moment that we we win this thing, uh, the moment that we uh, that we are able to actually flip a red district blue on this unapologetic message, on this 
organizing strategy where we're making hundreds of thousands of calls, knocking thousands of doors, suddenly there's a new model in the country. And the whole progressive movement levels up to the next level where it's, oh, wait a minute, we are now competitive in rural and exurban areas. Get out of the way, moderate Democrats. I think it's so important. You're running a campaign with this message that you're going to go to the call, the halls of Congress alongside working class people. You're not there to be a hero and go off to DC and make friends. You really understand the importance of organizing along with people even after you get into office, which is so huge. And as an organizer or someone with a background in organizing, you understand the people's relationship to power. Uh, and a lot of people get into public office and they sell out or they start making deals with people. Organizers don't do that. They understand that we're not going to achieve anything unless we've got the people standing up and fighting power. Can you just tell us a little bit about that approach uh, once you get into the halls of Congress? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you don't you don't choose to be an organizer for many, many cycles, many cycles unpaid, unless you actually are unapologetic and authentically fighting for 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 making the lot of of yourself, your family, your friends, your community better. And I think that I liked. I'd actually not thought of it quite in those terms before, but I think you're absolutely right. I think that if there's if there's any uh, if there's any uh, group of folks that uh, probably are um, are unlikely to be uh, to to be bought uh, or sold once they get to Capitol Hill, I think it is organizers, uh, particularly campaigns like ours that has not uh, accepted a dollar uh, or a dime in corporate donations. Uh, I've made uh, seventy thousand calls, uh, attempted calls uh, personally over the last two years in order to raise small dollar donations. Uh, to, to fund our campaign, we've raised uh, almost 900,000 so far. And so it is possible, uh, I hope uh, for the future that we can pass campaign finance reform so that uh, it gets easier to be, uh, to be a, a working class uh, representative without having to, uh, to just work 16 hour days. Uh, I think that we'll have a healthier, better democracy for it, but uh, certainly, I I feel that because of uh, you know because we haven't accepted corporate donations because of how hard we've worked over the past uh, couple of cycles that I have uh, I have quite a bit of freedom to be able to uh, to be able to to vote my conscience uh, and really uh, be a, a really to be, a, to be to be a solid champion for working and marginalized people. Yeah, you've got the experience there, and the most important experience you have is just struggling in America, being a working class person in America. We need people who understand what everyday life is like and where the problems are in Congress. And still, without taking corporate money, you outraised your opponent these past two quarters, which is huge. You've earned endorsements from labor unions, Ground Game LA and and places like Churla. Can you tell people, we've got the website down below, but can you tell people the best way to get involved in the campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have the progressive magic on this campaign. Uh, we've got people that are doing uh, Bernie journeys uh, that are coming out. Um, I'm hosting some folks at my house. Uh, you know, during the, the the Bernie Nevada campaign, I think I I had a, a a small apartment and we had 15 or so people that were <laughs> sleeping on the couch and everywhere. And uh, on on uh, this run right here, I actually uh, we have so many people that are that are coming to stay at my personal house. 
that I, I booked one of my friends to uh, to bring a tent to, to sleep in my backyard. Uh, luckily, we have a lot of supporter housing as well. So if you if you don't want to sleep in the backyard in a tent, uh, you can also come. Uh, but but I think right now in the last couple of weeks, it's uh, you know we will take any and all help. Uh, whether it is an organization, a, a, a late endorsement coming from a progressive uh, Congress member, whether it is an organization that wants to jump in. Uh, we've had hundreds of volunteers that have signed up from in district. Uh, we're making hundreds of thousands of calls. We got the really exciting uh, magic of a progressive campaign on our campaign and, and any and all help helps, whether it's volunteering, whether it's a donation to our campaign. Uh, I'm, I'm just ready to prove the model. We're ready to prove the model that progressives can win in rural and exurban areas. And when we do, to completely change the conversation and, and really capture back the narrative that, you know, in fact, if you want to win, uh, you know, you know, you want to win with, uh, with with working class folks, with marginalized people to be unapologetic in, in fighting for uh, working class economic uh, and social issues. Now, before I say goodbye, I'm going to make the case to our viewers at TYT because a lot of you are amazing progressives. You believe in the same values that Derek Marshall's campaign encapsulates, but maybe you've never organized before. This kind of campaign where people are coming from across the country, you're sleeping on couches, you're out talking to people every day, and you're learning to organize. It is the best feeling in the entire world. I promise you, you will not regret it. If you go out there, you make some phone calls, you knock some doors, go check out the campaign with Derek. Uh, try your hand at organizing. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. It is the most fulfilling work you can do. Thank you so much for coming on and talking, Derek. Uh, is there anything else you want to share just before I let you go about the campaign that you feel the viewers should know? No, I, I just want to thank you, uh, Jessica, for having me on. Um, it's always a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Derek.